Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. The line between order and disorder lies in logistics. Is a quote by Chinese military general, strategist, philosopher and writer Sun Tzu. I thought this was an apt quote for our guest today. Someone leading one of the world's largest logistics companies with over 500 sites and a network spanning 150 countries. Our guest is Toll Group's Managing Director, Alan Beecham, who oversees a team of 16,000, serving over 20,000 customers all over the world. Prior to his appointment, Alan held a variety of roles, including President of Global Forwarding and President of Global Express. He also held several executive leadership roles at engineering group UGL. He started his career at the iconic motor company Rolls-Royce before changing gears and working at Mercedes Ilmore, where they developed engines for the West McLaren Mercedes Formula One team with an up-and-coming Kimi Räikkönen. Alan currently sits on the board of Healthy Heads in Trucks and Sheds, a charity representing the well-being of those in his industry. He has previously served on the boards of Metro Trains Melbourne and Sydney, UGL Unipart, Nabel Ship Management and the Australian Rail Association. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you can apply to your own life. For our first-time listeners from all over the world, please don't forget to follow on your preferred podcast platform and share with your friends and colleagues. And for our listeners in Singapore, South Korea and Vietnam, a big hello. I am your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blenheim Partners, Board and Executive Search Firm. As an industry expert, Alan shares insights on a wide array of topics, including the unique opportunities being presented to business in Asia, how to operate in an increasingly complex and fast-paced business landscape, and the exciting developments in supply chain innovation, hydrogen trucks, artificial intelligence, and drones in the world of logistics. Finally, Alan touches on his leadership philosophy and the importance of inclusion, kindness, and resilience in this ever-changing world. So sit back and enjoy. Leadership is a gift. Alan, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Easy question to start with, Alan. What are your thoughts on the Australian, Asian, Northern Hemisphere economies at the moment? You're across <laughs> them all. What's going on? An easy question. What a warm-up. Yeah. Uh, so I've got lots of thoughts on it, but I don't think that I've got any of the answers. I struggle to find an economist that would actually agree 
with each other, let alone with me, on on what's going on. So I, I think it's easiest to talk about what's our actual experience yeah. of the different economies. So if I think about the US economy, in around October last year, we really started to see volumes slow down. And so that was very much the leader in the effect of what I think we're seeing, which is a global slowdown uh, and a reduction in volumes, at least in in volume of freight being moved. I mean, that's fact. There's 20% less freight going across the gate of the port of LA and Long Beach in November last year than there was the year before. And that volume has not recovered. So that's sort of same. It's stabilized, so it's not dropping as fast. Was the peak during COVID? Uh, absolutely. There was an absolute peak during COVID and there was a 10% demand spike caused by the US, which I think was caused by the triple incentive program that hit there. And so people had money to spend and they were spending it. Yeah. Um, so there is a little bit of a hangover of that, but the US economy hasn't tanked though. So we've seen a, a significant slowdown in our customers and the volumes being moved and the volumes in general, so all, all handlers. In Europe, we've seen a similar effect in a reduction in volume, but I think the drivers are, are somewhat more complicated for Europe. We've obviously got the effect of the Ukraine war, you've got yeah. the effect of Brexit, and you've got rapid inflation due to probably both those things and, and rising prices this morning. I saw the results at the UK still at 10% inflation and now the highest inflation in Europe. And then here in Australia, you know, we do have high inflation. I think it was just at 7% reported. But uh, for a long time, the Australian economy seemed to be faring quite well. Where on this most recent trip to Australia, I'm now seeing real signs of at least what I would call a retail recession starting okay. to occur. And the example, you know, I'll use in a very domestic position of what do I think of the Australian economy right now? Um, we've got a few clients who are in the sneaker business. And in January, it was still flying. Uh, to some extent, the population that buys sneakers were not affected by the concerns of mortgage stress, the concerns of rising interest rates. But now we're seeing some of the building kind of collapses. We're seeing some easing in, in the job market. I think people are starting to be more cautious. So does cautious translate into crash? is probably the $64,000 question for the yeah. Australian economy. But I hate to be the kind of the one who's on the more negative side of the outlook, but that's certainly what we're preparing for is a slower economic outlook in Australia over the, at least the next the winter period, um, where I would say in the US, it's still confused. I listened to an economist, which I thought actually spoke sense, kind of show that the monetary tightening has only really just started to bite when you look at a trimmed mean PCE, which, you know, what does that mean? That's the sort of the taking away things from the basket of goods that inflation is measured on yeah. and looking at the real effect and then comparing that to the Fed's fiscal policy. And he painted a picture that said tightening is only really just starting to happen and therefore he was predicting continued rises, which I think is right. The question is what then happens? Does the economy break and suddenly snap? and go down or is it actually able to kind of glide through and to be honest for the globe that's the criticality if the u.s economy kind of keeps going where in asia it's a very different picture it's it's a lot more fragmented it's a lot more mixed i live in singapore i've moved to singapore my personal felt effect is the singapore economy is going very well okay um, but inflation is also starting to rise more and more largely driven by a rental position but also by rising cost input costs of food in many other countries and what do Singaporeans love to talk about? It's food. Yeah. What about China? What are you seeing there? You're close to the action there. No, we are. And again, our, you know, all the predictions are that China will now start to rise and, and you'll really see the economy rebound. The viewpoint is, is that that will take 
at least until the second half, half of this year to see that that effect materialize into kind of global trade and global demand i actually think the labor government in australia is doing a great job for australia in in trying to improve the relations you know which positions australian businesses very well in a china relations context yeah. and particularly around the exports that australia needs really to navigate itself through this slower economic period but we're not seeing a rising demand within china just yet we have several kind of local distribution centers and regional distribution centers and we're not seeing the uptick in demand but i do think it will come i just think there's a lag in what will happen and it, and it's we're foolish to underestimate the effect that china can have on the asian economy as well as the global economy the influence of the us is it still there cuz they're pursuing an isolationist policy more so now i think it's it's really interesting i think the overall the effect of the geopolitical tension between the us and china is impacting global companies as to where they are choosing to source manufacturing through the i guess the trump tariff trade wars yeah. people talked about moving and people talked about china plus 1 but they looked at it and went it's too hard during covid oh, okay. everyone had a shock and went wow this is real you know what happens if the supply turns off i need some resiliency in my supply chain but it was difficult to react because of all the other things we were dealing with now in a post covid world we're seeing a lot of active moves to start to actually either physically shift or think about shifting and i think the thing that also turbocharges that is not just geopolitical instability but it's the rise in the potential of a carbon price and therefore moving your manufacturing closer to your market means that you consume less carbon in the shipping and the transportation and you're also building resiliency into your supply chain so we're certainly seeing global manufacturers not exit china whole scale mm-hmm. but but develop strategies to have alternate options which in effect builds resiliency into their supply chain but allows them to continue to take advantage of what has been the factory of the world for quite some time but am i or are you seeing other nations being smart about incentivizing business you know we we will talk about singapore who's done it exceptionally well but you do see everything across the world in in your role are companies or countries coming together better and saying well look there might be an exit strategy make it worth my while i think necessity being the mother of all invention has seen singapore and probably dubai to be the world leaders in in actually making a policy decision of saying we're going to be open for business we're going to attract foreign investment and we're going to make it easy for that to happen in other countries it seems you know where there's perhaps more political instability or more frequent change of government or just more general bureaucracy that becomes harder the obvious uh position of that would be india right you know i do believe in india i've believed in it ever since i first went there 10 years ago and i think it really will you will see it rise it's the fastest growing economy in the world right now but it's it's not easy to do business no. in india there's still quite a few loopholes there's still quite a few things and it's murky mm. i was in vietnam 2 weeks ago and that is a country that is absolutely seeing lots of foreign investment come in they're pro foreign investment but it's also comes with complexity as you look for land as you try and acquire or get into land that's already been zoned and classified and so it's a very complex kind of situation and you need quite a bit of help to try and navigate that and that's certainly something we're trying to do and help our customers do but you know we ourselves are having to navigate it yeah what about australia are we being smart or not So I think Australia in there's an opportunity here surely. There's a massive opportunity but there's also some things that I think create a degree of sovereign risk. You know, we saw it um 
many years ago with the resource super profits tax. I think that was around 2010. Yes. That kind of really spooked foreign investment. Similarly, at the moment with energy and gas pricing and the potential kind of uh, unintended consequences of what is is, is really trying to help the Australian public is spooking foreign investment again. And so I think the challenge for any government is how to look across all aspects of a policy decision to say, well, if I'm making a policy decision to support the locals, will it actually disincentivize, you know, foreign investment? I think Australia has a terrific opportunity in its natural resource. Yes, but we've been playing that game for how long? But it is the one advantage that Australia has, considering it's got a lot of dis-synergies or disadvantages being low population and a tyranny of distance. So it has to play to its strength. But I think what about processing? We don't do much processing, Alan. We do well, terrific at digging the hole and shipping. If you said, what would I want to see in Australia? I'd like to see the population grow. I think you know, we've got the space, we've got the opportunity, but to do that, we've got to change the infrastructure. We've got to allow that growth to come into the country. And unfortunately, that requires government intervention to facilitate and lay down the foundations. Then things like processing and so on. Ultimately, the green economy gives the greatest natural opportunity for Australia to start to consider that as we look at how do we actually combat energy intensive processing activities. If Australia can create the platform where it can actually have a reliable and low cost source of renewable energy, it could really shift the game. Yeah. Okay. But from a business perspective, are we moving too fast? And what the rhetoric is saying compared to the pain that could be dished out? I don't think we're moving too fast in Australia. I I would not say that at all. Okay. What are you comparing it to then? So if you look at the speed at which other economies have been able to stand up policy and get injection, again, you know, living in Singapore, I've probably got more direct observation of that, but probably Singapore was behind in a, in a green kind of uh, commentary or policy decision. Now, you know, it's, it's actually supplied or developed a green energy agreement with Australia and now is really trying to accelerate and it's able to move very quickly where the wheels of the sort of three level of government that we have here makes it more difficult. There's more stakeholders involved. It's harder to actually cut through and get the decisions that are pro-investment, pro-international investment to actually stand up projects that will really create Australia's population growth that I think it needs. So what advice would you pass on to the PM or to any ministers who may be listening today? I think I would be remiss not to try and pass on the advice that was relative to transport and the things that we're trying to deal with. We have a significant opportunity and a significant challenge here when it comes to transport. You know, we we need transport without trucks. Australia stops is the the thing that you will see on every truck uh, driving around Australia. But as we try and transition to a low carbon economy, there's a massive opportunity to do that, but a massive risk. You know, right now we're trying to wrestle with, we need a two ton axle weight relief. We need the ability to not have to redesign trucks to be fit for purpose for Australia. There's only a something like a half centimetre or one centimetre gauge difference, but that is the difference between being able to bring a European truck in clean versus actually having you know one specified. So there's really simple things that we can do to incentivise and improve our ability to actually transition into a greener economy. What is toll? Well, Toll is a company founded, you know, 134 years ago by a man, you know, who was working in the mines in Newcastle, Australia, 
and actually was working before that in the mines in Newcastle, England. So Newcastle was very dear to his heart, but he saw an opportunity to get out of the mines and actually start a business. So he bought a horse and a cart and he founded a company on hard work. You know, he worked harder than other people, which created a customer service experience. And he grew that business through that work ethic, through that customer service and a level of entrepreneurialism into the company that it is today. I think that spirit has what has, has driven toll. Today we are, you know, a global supply chain company, over 2 million meters of warehousing space. We operate in over 28 countries. We've got over 500 locations. Really with our mission is to be an integrated solutions provider into the Asia Pacific region uh, primarily, right. but with a global reach. Asia Pacific because of the scale and obviously the population. Asia Pacific because, you know, when you look at where the, you know, the global growth is going to come from, that is the region. And therefore, if you're a sort of, if you're a business person looking to actually capitalize on it, you have to be looking to Asia Pacific from a growth opportunity. You got first advantage or where are you at? Uh, We don't have first advantage in Asia Pacific. We do have, I think, a significant natural home in Australia and a significant natural base. That is something that we, you know, we will always call home. But we're now, you know, deliberately spreading our wings out into the Asia Pacific region. I'm based in Singapore as a deliberate kind of statement that if you want to do business in Asia, you've got to be in Asia. And that's a real, I think, lesson learned for me from previous efforts to do business in Asia. I've learned more in the last nine months living in Asia than I ever knew about Asia before that. And so immersing yourself there. We have strength in Singapore, we've got strength in China, and then everywhere else we see as opportunity. Been around for 134 years. You're going to be around for another 134? Absolutely. Any leader that comes into an organization, you know, is seen as a custodian of the brand. And someone once said to me, as the custodian of the brand, you need to leave it in better shape than when you when you found it. I was fortunate enough to actually take over this position at a time where Toll, you know, had really matured and dealt with a lot of sort of significant challenges. And so my job is to really take it forward now into a growth mode and actually set it up so that it can be the Australian icon that it has been, but actually a global supply chain leader that calls Australia home. So what is the actual scale of it in terms of revenue, workforce, and you said 28 countries? Yeah. So $6 billion revenue business, our workforce is just over 10,000 people, employees, and around 15,000 when you include all of our um, good contractors. All right. And what are you going to leave it as? My mission right now is uh, over the next three years is to double its earnings. And then I'd like my legacy, I'd like to see the business double in size. Ambitious? It is ambitious. But, you know, if you don't set yourself a goal out there that means something, you know, what are you going for? But I I do believe strongly that it isn't about the numbers for toll alone. What is it about then? I think as a leader, particularly for myself, you know, I, I think it is really about the mark that you leave on an organization and on a society, more so than, than what's on the scoreboard. There's a poem by uh, John Stephenson that, you know, what will matter, that actually you heard read out at a friend of mine's father's funeral last year. And that, that poem knocked me for six around, you know, we often chase numbers, but actually what matters in the end is not what was on the scoreboard, but actually the way you played the game, actually about the way that you taught people, the way that you developed people, the way that you interacted with society, how you actually impacted the communities that you live, work and serve, how you actually helped your customers and what you provided for your shareholder and the way in which you did that. And I think that, you know, 
is something that I want to leave as a legacy for Toll, rather than necessarily a scoreboard result. However, I am competitive and I am ambitious, and that's why I make those statements. So that's your mark. That's that's what I'm going to be looking for, am I? I think I would like to be known for not so much the numbers, but more for the way in which we did we achieved them. But nevertheless, we're committed to actually growing. All right. Now, Toll has a history which has been an organisation which has grown dramatically, but it's been a bolt-on for many years ago. The synergies, the systems, the processes, we've all read about it, awfully complex. So how do you pull this off? So I think... Well, it sounds warm and fuzzy, and I understand you could get there, but gosh, it's a lot of work to do to do that. So I think Toll has been terrific in the way it did grow. Paul Little, management buyout in the end of the 80s, and took it through to uh, to when he stepped down in, I think, 2012. You know, there's something like 110 acquisitions over that period, and he took it up to, you know, peak revenue, just over $8 billion. Integrated? Not, a, not really. They worked on it, and I think, you know, when you're doing that pace of acquisition, it's hard to really say it's integrated. Yeah. So there's an inevitability to that, and it's not a criticism. But we've spent the last five years absolutely integrating the business. We've spent the last five years trying to standardize the business and set it up on a platform that we can now grow. And so in our growth trajectory now, we need a mix of organic and inorganic growth. In the numbers that we've put down to double our earnings growth, we've got over 30% warehousing space growth with capital you know, effectively approved right, by okay. our shareholders to take us forward on that. But in addition, we've got to go out there and look to bolster our current capability and competency set with strategic acquisitions that allow us to either access a geography or access a competency or a vertical that is complementary. And our focus is trying to run toll as a portfolio business that's balanced across the economic cycles, which we are to some degree today. Okay, but we so need share to the, share the risk. Yeah, correct. Okay, yeah. and, but we need to do that, you know, continue to do that. Is there a business model that you're looking at similar to? I, no, I mean, no, because I think to say that, then you really end up in the position of, so why you? Why yeah. toll? Yeah. We say that, uh, to, to our customers and to our employees, you know, we're big enough to matter but small enough to care. We're in that middle phase. So what does that mean that we can do? Well, we're a freight forwarder and we're a third-party logistics provider or contract logistics our mission is to stitch that together in a way that still delivers that more personalized and integrated solution where to some of the giants that are out there that have that capability, it becomes a lot harder through the scale. And so our mission you know, as a team is to actually think about our customers around what's their business problem. What is it that will actually add value and try and shift our relevance to not be a commodity player, you're the cheapest provider, but actually to be you're the provider that will deliver me a competitive advantage to my end business goal. And that's what we're trying to achieve. You've been at Toll for how long? Uh, I'll be five years in September. So still a relative new boy to some of the Toll folks. Okay, so you get the tap, you get the opportunity, you're the future leader. Not easy, because everybody knows you as a work colleague, and now you're the leader. What'd you change? When I came in, I very much had a, a position of evolution, not revolution. You know, I'd been a part of the senior leadership team for a, in a number of years and been part of the design of what our future strategy was. So I didn't really, and, and I think it would be unauthentic to just immediately go, well, it's all wrong, let's do something different. Because it wasn't, and I was part of that, and if I should have said something if, if I didn't believe it. Yeah. 
but we all have our own natural styles. We all have our natural approach. And, and I think the thing I did immediately was to try and redefine who we wanted to be as a new leadership team under new leadership. What does it actually mean for us? And we came up with probably a lot of the same identity sort of statements that you might see in many organizations, but you've got to make it your own. You know, so the things that we said that we would stand for as a team would be to be one top, to actually integrate the business and to try and grow across the organization, to work together as a team rather than work against each other, be in silos. And they are things that are not easy to actually achieve, but that's what we've really set out to try and unpack. And I can see much better collaboration across the divisions. Because if you want to be an integrated provider of solutions, you actually have to have your freight forwarding team and your warehousing team lockstep with the customer saying, this is what we can do for you. Who made the decision to move HQ out of Australia? It was a decision that was, I think, encouraged by the, the shareholder. So Japan Post, you know, its mission for, for buying toll was international growth. And so if you stay in Australia, you're limiting yourself around that. And I think they were very keen to see that we backed that up with action. I think Michael was the sort of the first person to really put effort behind transition of personnel. Thomas, when he was appointed as the CEO, was based in Singapore, so it created a natural epicentral you know, move. And progressively now, I want to take a position of having half the leadership team within Australia and half the leadership team within Singapore to create a natural balance. It gives us a much better opportunity to get around the globe to see customers or clients, but also makes a clear statement of, we're still an Australian business. We still have half of our business in Australia, and we're not going to give that up. We're going to keep developing but we are going to grow externally and particularly in Asia Pacific. And from a management philosophy or style, it must have changed somewhat from the heart and soul out of Melbourne to Singapore. I think what happens when you move things like head office, right, it creates a degree of fear and uncertainty until you can, you can unpack that. Yeah, okay. Uh, and I think that's something that we've probably had to navigate as we've had a lot of other distractions over the course of COVID and other things. Uh. But we're now starting to get a good identity, you know, being clear around half the leadership team will be in Australia, you know, half will be outside, being clear that we're not departing Australia whole scale, being clear that we will continue to have the right people in the right location focused on the things that our customers and our employees need us to do. Uh, so, I think we're starting to settle into that groove um, and we're really starting to sort of see that there is opportunity to grow in Asia. We needed to get the growth and, and we've achieved sort of 15% growth in our Asia logistics business over the last 12 months. Mm -hmm. And that has also helped people believe, well, okay, it is starting to happen. If you want to double earnings, if you're going to double earnings, what type of people are you going to bring in in, in terms of leaders now? Is that changing your mindset? We're definitely trying to improve um, the diversity of the business and the diversity of thought, you know, we're trying to graduate for some of the commentary that's been labelled on, I think, you know, any transport sort of business, you know, truckies in suits. There was a comment labelled at Toll, maybe I'd like to see myself as an engineer in high vis, and that's me. But what we need is a leadership team built of different people. We have some of the hardcore transport leaders, but we also have leaders who've lived outside in very different companies our CFO has, has, although he's got some logistics experience, he's grown up through very different organizations, FMCG and then Honeywell for a long period of time. Yeah. So we're very much trying to build that diversity into our leadership team in all facets in terms of age, experience, gender, race, location. 
but it isn't easy because as soon as you change something, you bring the change in. But that's the journey we're on. Does it really work? And I the reason I say everyone talks to the cool, eh? I think I think the best the best example, you know, are lived and personal examples. So where I've seen leadership teams built of the same people, you all think the same way and you end up kind of drinking your own Kool-Aid. Where leadership teams built of different people will actually challenge each other. And that's something we're trying to make really a defined part of our mantra is we've got to be able to challenge each other well in the team, actually say, while we're talking about this, it's not moving the boat forward, you know, it's not helping us grow. Um, there's a great example of a study done, which is written in a book called, the, uh, I think it's the Diversity Bonus, where they took a team of super bright professors and pit them against basically a, a randomized mix of everyday life people to solve problems. And the everyday life people over a period of time beat them time and again on the creativity of problem solving. Yeah, right. Because they had the diversity of thought to ask that perhaps the unobvious questions and sometimes the obvious questions in a way that wasn't groupthink or wasn't trying to be the smartest person in the room. Often the best solutions to a problem are the simplest ones, but they're almost always the ones that most people don't think about. So what's leadership? Neil, if we're going to go down that path, what's your style of leadership and what is leadership to you? So if, if I ask people, you know, what do they think about me? I think they would say I'm an inclusive and kind of collegiate leader. You know, I see my job as really to to really work hard on the vision and the direction. Where are we going and why are we going there? You know, focus on the why particularly. And if you get that right and you can inspire people, then the question is how do you sort of unlock the potential? Also, if we were asking my team, they would probably say, it's good where that starts, but as the pressure comes on, I'm very inquisitive and ask questions, you know, why are the things happening? I like to kind of keep my finger on the pulse. We have a saying in Toll, get out and look which is a safety saying, and it's a saying of, you know, trying to not run into things. But that's my leadership style. I like to get out and look. I spend a lot of time on the road, in the high-vis, in the businesses, trying to actually understand what's going on, how's it working, how do we help, what do we need to do. I'm a big believer that, you know, it's the reverse pyramid. I'm at the bottom trying to support the organization, not at the top. You talked about, you said the, um, the unlock, the potential. Where's that sit? In the guts of the business, at the top of the business? You're doing the reverse pyramid on me. Where does that sit? There's no doubt the potential sits in the first few layers of the organization that touches the customer and does the work. Okay. I've always believed that. You know, It's always been my mantra. The problem is how do you actually unlock it and how do you work through that? The people that get stuck are the people in the middle. You know, They're trying to listen to things that we're saying, this is the vision, this is the direction. They're also trying to react to the needs of the employees. And there's, you know, there's an old adage, you know, line up your leadership structure, give them all elastic bands and then say to the CEO, go right and go hard and watch all those armbands snap, you know, yeah, right, okay. as it goes through. And, I, yep. and so the way to unlock the potential and the challenge that we keep facing is how do we keep the narrative simple? How do we keep it consistent and clear on what we're trying to do? And how do we create that listening approach? It's hard. I don't profess to have all of the answers, but, you know, I definitely believe in it as the approach. You started in some pretty interesting times and you got your, they had to get through that period of COVID. What did you learn? Well, we, at the time, so I took over the running the Global Express division, which is parcels, pallets, everywhere. At the beginning of our first cyber attack, oh, right. a few weeks later, we started to see the first signs of COVID. By the end of probably my first eight weeks, we had 
effectively gone through the first cyber attack and the recovery and we were fully into COVID. And on 23rd of March, we locked the country down in Australia. And then on the 3rd of May, we had the second cyber attack. So I'd say the first 90 days were not a normal first 90 days for any leader. What I learned through that was one, the resilience and the capability of the toll team in a crisis is second to none, as good as I've ever seen anywhere. It's something that we talk about now is how do we actually create the same conditions of distributed leadership where people are fully empowered and capable and able to make decisions in the good of the company, in the good of the customer and the good of the employee to look after them. They were truly remarkable through that whole time. You know, the effort to actually keep our people safe whilst actually in effect saving the company and saving the business. You know, we were burning a significant amount of cash because, you know, we were unable to collect our invoices due to, you know, all of the system challenges. Yeah. It was phenomenal. The resourcefulness, the um, the efforts that people would go to to actually solve a customer problem, get them there, what they needed to continue to run their business was quite remarkable. So what I learned through that was, again, the power of really simple kind of goals, alignment around what we needed to do, and then really empowering people and giving them the freedom to go out. We made a ton of mistakes through that period, you know, and we did upset people, but we had that view that says, well, okay, what did we learn from that? Let's fix it. Let's move on. Don't do that again. But what's the next idea? What's the next thing we're going to try? Unfortunately, you can't keep that same, you know, we're struggling to f- sort of reignite that same level of creativity in in kind of peacetime. Mm, mm. And that's the kind of the mantra as we go into this new financial year that we're taking is, is actually- How do you do it again? How do we do it again? Because the economic uncertainty that's out there means we've really got to stay nimble. So we're back into this mode of running in three-month sprints and really sort of saying, okay, you're free to try things. If you're doing it the same way, that's wrong. Do something different. Try it. Another saying that I learned from someone, if it's not broken, break it. And I think that's the spirit that we're actually trying to work through at the moment is actually have a go, try different things all around the same sort of values and principles, which is keep everyone safe, serve your customer. Why three months sprints? It's just an easy time frame, right? It's just a logical thing. Break the year into four quarters and allow people to have a rest as well. Yeah. You got to kind of, you got to have that thing that, well, I only want it to go hard for three months and then I want it to go and have a break, recover, and then let's think about what we learned through that three months and then let's try again. So I guess the flip side of all this is also there must be a huge opportunity waiting for you then too. Well, I think any market has opportunity because everyone lives in the same market. We're all swimming in the same ocean. And so in good times, good people capitalize on it, but in bad times, good people will capitalize on it and see it as an opportunity. So whilst this market looks difficult, I see that as, as a terrific opportunity for us as a company to actually say, well, our customers will react and respond to those that actually help them. And we worked hard on that when you couldn't get available space on ships. We worked harder than we think other people to do that. And we'll do the same now. How do we actually help our customers navigate this? So in doing that and bending your back, did you get the loyalty back in return? From some customers, yes, but not from everyone. But that's what you learn, right? You learn about those that kind of stay with you through all those times. You know that they're the customers that you want forever and you, and you need to kind of keep winning that. And then those that not, we've got to reflect on going, this is a commodity end of the business. Is this the kind of the business that we want to be in? And really trying to be a bit more defined around looking for the right customers as much as we want to serve anyone. 
it's important that we get the right relationship. 80-20 rule? I don't know that there's a percentage that you can kind of work through. I think it's a feeling. You know when you start interacting with a customer whether you're on the right footing or not. Where are you from originally? I was born in uh, a place called Whiston, which is just outside Liverpool in the UK. And mum and dad, what do they do? Uh, my dad was a chemist. He funded himself through university and a PhD in, in the UK and the US and ended up uh, working for ICI and worked his way through the kind of the the technology side of ICI and ended up as the chief technology officer. My mum was a very resourceful and creative person who's done many different jobs, largely kind of moving around and supporting my dad in his early career, but then, you know, supporting us as we were in, you know, our early years. And so she's, she's done lots of different careers through that, but it always has a story and always has a smile. And you, what, pursued academic and what, manufacturing engineering was it yeah i think um so is that the chemistry the old man sort of rubbing off a little bit or inquisitiveness oh definitely inquisitive i was a very curious child i probably frustrated my parents with really wanting to know how things worked and um, they would tell me that i was excellent at working out how to pull things apart not so good at putting them back together and so i guess somehow that stuck into me that well i probably need to learn how to put things back together and that drove me into a, a career in manufacturing engineering big break rolls royce Absolutely. Uh, Great foundation. Phenomenal. Year and a half into university, I was sort of like, where am I going? What am I doing? Why am I doing an engineering degree? Uh, I chose a flexible degree where you could take a year out. And so I applied for different companies, got an internship at Rolls-Royce, and so took a year uh, to work for them. And it was the best thing I ever did. You know, I really found my passion, my love for uh, I guess. So the Rolls Royce is just the jet engine element. It, is, it okay. is jet engines. I mean, the number one question you ever feel when you say if you work for Rolls Royce is they go, "Oh, what what beautiful cars!" <laughs> and you're like, That's right. Maybe well, one day you might get to drive one if you do well. Oh, I'd love to, but you know, Rolls Royce hasn't owned Rolls Royce cars for a very, very long time, and so yeah, I was always explaining that at Rolls Royce. But at, at you know, such a prestigious engineering organization, and it really grounded me in how to develop young people. You know, I was given tremendous opportunities to tackle really exciting projects, even as an undergraduate. What were you good at? Oh, what, what would you stand out at Rolls-Royce? Like you say, just to get selected is an honour and a half. Uh, so I think the thing that, and, and even to this day, the thing that really drives me is a problem. And so I was given the opportunity to work on a problem, and I think that's a real thing that we've got to do with our graduates. We've got to trust them to actually have a go and give them a problem to solve. And I was given that opportunity and I took it and, uh, you know, I probably shouldn't could have solved some things quicker than I did, but it was the chance to learn and forge, you know, that curiosity. How does someone make it into the Mercedes then? Formula One team? Uh, yeah. I mean, through, uh, we all form connections and relationships with people that we work with. The person who gave me my first management start in Rolls-Royce moved it over to a Formula One company and one day somehow tapped me on the shoulder at a point where I was probably vulnerable and said, I'm working over here. Do you want to come and have a go? And I said, oh no, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm going to stay in Rolls-Royce for the rest of my life. This is a great company. And he said, just come and have a look. And he showed me the car, showed me the racetrack and uh, I promptly resigned and who went was, to uh, Mercedes. Who were the drivers then? Uh, so Kimi Raikkonen and David Coulthard. Come on, talk us through. There must have been some stories there. Oh, I, I think the, what, my favorite. What was, your, what was your role there? My role was uh, production engineering manager, uh, so that was being the liaison between the design team and the manufacturing team. 
So we effectively wrote the code for the machines, we developed the fixtures, and we did all of the test equipment. Uh, a good story would be, you know, Kimmy, the whole thing about Formula One is development. It's about feedback from the driver, you know, this human machine interface. And so the engineers at the end of the testing would kind of come up to Kimmy and say, um, oh, Kimmy. so how was it? How was it? You know, it's okay. But how, how did it handle? It's okay. And that was probably, you know, he was a phenomenal driver. But the person to credit with the development of the engine in terms of, you know, really good feedback was David Coulthard. He was very articulate, very kind of clear on what went on. Both were a terrific team, I think, during that time. What was the environment like? You're working with the best, aren't you? Yeah, I think um, someone said to me, you know, you're walking into an environment where you're no longer a bright light because you're surrounded by people that are even brighter than you. And so you've got to learn how to actually forge your own kind of path and get things done. And so the environment was one of, I think acceptance was not through status, it was through output, it was through delivery. You had to earn your stripes by knowing what you're doing, contributing, you know, how do you make the engine go faster? How do you make the car go faster? What are you delivering? And I found that thrilling. I found that such a rewarding environment of we all, so the, also the immediacy of getting the feedback is there too, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. You were measured every two weeks on the racetrack. And that, that brought its own challenges, but it's such, uh, it is such a visible uh, sport in terms of performance and who's doing well and who's not. Yeah, can't hide. Cannot hide. Who was the nemesis in those days? Was uh, Ferrari? Ferrari? Ferrari, absolutely. Schumacher? Schumacher. And again, I had the, you know, the fortune to actually watch Schumacher in the pits working with his team and there was a you know there was certainly a man who worked very very hard not just on the technical side but on the team side so late at night before the Grand Prix the next day he would still be working with the team on the tire change and getting that right and being prepared to sit in the car and drive in and so on not leaving that to someone else. So what did you learn about then in terms of leadership or high performance during this period? So I think high performance that has stayed with me ever since is right to left thinking. Start with the end in mind. What's the outcome you're really looking for? Being super clear on that because if you're ambiguous, yeah, okay. then you can end up where you didn't want to be. And there's nothing more challenging that sort of, you know, you ending up going, look what I've done. And they say, that's not what I wanted. So high performance comes from all of you having absolute clarity on what you're trying to achieve and then working from that outcome back to where are you right now and what's got to happen. And it really sharpens the mind. We traditionally left to right think we project manage left to right i start here well, working from the bottom up well working from you know where am i now and this is where i'm going to end up and this is when it's going to be done well that's not acceptable the race is on sunday this is what i need you've got to work backwards of going well what has to happen for that to happen and wherever you are is wherever you are but you've then got to solve all of the problems that get you to that absolute date so if i'm working with the elite which you are during that time who motivates you you motivate it's self-motivation i think through through both fear and opportunity. You know, my experience during that time, and I think my experience right now, the way I look at things is you don't want to let others down. Yep. You're in a team environment, and I still feel like that, you know, every day that I get up, you know, I don't want to let my toll fellows down. But you also are driven to kind of go, and I want to make a difference. I want to contribute. I want to actually help make things go faster in the Formula One world. But here in toll, I want to help make the company go better. Small teams, very focused teams, high-performing individuals. Message gets across pretty quick, understood, and you can't hide. You're running a large-scale 
multinational business. How do you get your message out? And you're not dealing, not everyone's elite. I think, I think it's, it's the same thing, that clarity of what are we trying to do? I work really hard on trying to keep the message simple, which is often a challenge for me because probably my wife tells me I talk too much. Um, but, you know, really got to focus on no more than five points in a message, really trying to keep it simple, uh, give the why as to what you're trying to do, give what the outcome looks like and communicate, communicate, communicate. You've been exposed to some of the best technology from the racing days, but you're also exposed to the future technology in your role now. What are we going to be seeing coming? I think it's such an exciting period. You know, the next 10 years uh, in the world of logistics is very unstable. Uh, I'm not forecasting a change to containerization, which has been around for 50 years, but I am forecasting the rise of, uh, of digital uh, and Internet of Things, really meaning that everything is enabled so that we can track and trace and see and optimize across every point of the supply chain. I think we will see uh, dramatic innovation in moving away from the traditional internal combustion engine that is used in yep. every form of the transportation, even in, in the gas turbines of, of aviation. We're all wrestling with how to actually shift to a low and eventually zero carbon propulsion solutions. And at the same time, we're frame, we're seeing uh, the demands of the customer shift around you know, I talk about the three R's of supply chain. And in yeah, fact, on. Let, me, let me go back. For a long time, we've talked just in time. And then COVID happened and everyone talked about just in case, which I never subscribed to and I always thought was bad business because it means you're piling inventory into the system. What does just in case means to the layman out there? So it means just in case means, oh, I'm going to buy it now just in case. Just in case I need it. Yeah, toilet roll. Yep. You know, why did we all go and buy toilet roll? You know, it's still, it's beyond me. Just in case. Just in case. It's bad business. It's really bad business. And it means that you stress supply chains. And that's why we run out of things during that time. Because the buy signal and the rules that we've sort of built the whole just-in-time ethos on go out the window. And that's, in effect, what happened in COVID. We broke the system. All right. So now as we, as we recover and we've got some sense of normality, I feel that we need the three R's. We need a responsible supply chain, one where, in fact, let me start with the, the a more practical, the resilient supply chain, which a lot of people talk just in case is about resiliency, which I don't agree with. Resiliency for me is actually being able to give our customers and what we're working on in Toll is being able to say, okay, that supply route is blocked. You can go to a different location because we're tracking it in real time, because we're looking at the decisions, we'll now give you a different path to get your goods to market, to get it to the customer. So resiliency is about finding where the weak points, where the choke points is, and then putting good decision-making or good risk management strategies in place. So instead of holding inventory at the end, do you hold it at the source Yeah. Okay. and, and change that? That's the warehousing play and everything. Correct. And so right. I think you'll see a shift around that. Second thing is, you know, we really want a responsive supply chain, which we traditionally optimize supply chains on speed or cost. Do you want it quick or do you want it cheap? And most people say I want both, but that's the sort of traditional tension point. They will still apply in the future, but we will also add in what's your carbon impact? Do you need to optimize for carbon? Do you need to reduce carbon? Are you prepared to change your supply chain to reduce carbon? And then do you actually need to create a, a degree of um, you know, the fourth dimension that we really want to work through? 
is this kind of notion of contribution to to nature and its impact yep and that's where i kind of feed into the responsible supply chain and that's where it comes to we are increasingly looking as consumers to say where did this come from and how is it treated whether it is the provenance of the ingredients and are they truly what they say they are yep whether it is the provenance of how have you made this and how have you supplied it so modern slavery and, and other things and ethical sourcing and then what has happened to it you know if you sort of think about temperature sensitive or humid sensitive aspects am i prepared to pay a premium for that i think some will be prepared to pay a premium and others will try and demand it and not pay a premium. I, I, that's, oh, that's what you should be providing anyway type thing. And, and that's the nature of, of where people in the middle sit in a supply chain is we're trying to manage large uh, companies, you know, looking to exert supply chain pressure yes. onto the providers. But eventually we'll solve all those problems. If you look at how we as as humans have been able to really in in a relatively short period of time shift you think about the price of a tv largely stays the same yep but the functionality and the technology shifts so there is a period where going to low carbon will mean a cost increase but eventually we'll solve that problem and we'll improve it and eventually it will get back so it's all about managing those ripples so i've got resilience i've got responsible what was the third r so a resilient responsive and responsible so they're the three r's okay Going back on the technology piece and where we are with regards to carbon, and you've sort of given some indication, but is hydrogen you know, engines, et cetera, going to come into play? Or is, it just, or is it just theory? And if so, what's the timeline? Or what are you guys actually investing in now? So hydrogen is here. There are hydrogen vehicles running around. You know, China has actually been developing hydrogen for quite some time, and there are hydrogen buses you know, happily running around in China. We have invested in a hydrogen truck uh, that is due uh, to coincide with Viva's investment in the hydrogen production, all part of an initiative supported by the Victorian government. And we're looking to bring that first truck into operation for Viva as a launch customer towards the uh, sort of middle of next year. Yep. The Hydrogen Highways Initiative was a, an initiative launched by the government and it's running through a tender process right now to try and provide hydrogen refueling across the Hume. So running north-south, you know, from Melbourne through Sydney up to Brisbane. And again, you know, that's a commitment to put down the fuel kind of availability. There are a number of companies working on hydrogen. You know, all of the manufacturers are trying to think their way through it. There is no common kind of position on the technology is it fuel cell or is it hydrogen you know adaptation of a, of a standard internal combustion engine where do you store the fuel do you store it as gas or do you store it as liquid mm. they all come with complexity they all come with challenge they all come with a tear weight penalty but do i think it is the future yeah i think it's going to be one of the solutions i think electric solves the lighter end of the haulage task and hydrogen yeah is currently the only solution at the heavy end. Will something else come along that we haven't thought about? Maybe. Uh, but right now, the best pathway we can see is to try and get ahead and get in front of understanding the hydrogen requirement because in our fleet, electric alone won't solve all of the problems or won't solve all of our, our needs. Alan, China is pretty much becoming the hub of AI in the world, investing so heavily in it. What are you tapping into there? So, I mean, AI is one of these terms that is just, you know, amorphous. Yeah. It's, it's what does it actually mean? What does it actually mean? Yep. 
So I think if you break it down into finding ways that you can create a learning environment and then use that learning environment to sort of make autonomous decisions around solutions, we're already started on that. You know, we launched our first, we call it RPA, robotic process automation, where you it learns tasks that you've previously done manually, you know, using a human. And effectively, if you ingest enough information, it can then effectively make all of those judgment calls and deliver the output that you need. So we're already there. We're already working on those features. Okay. Are we sitting there, you know, with ChatGPT trying to work out how to write a dissertation? No. Are we investigating how to use that for research and other things? Yeah, absolutely. There are people in our organization that are way smarter than me and that, you know, are already early adopters. Yep. Our thrust at the moment of where we're looking for developing, uh, I guess, artificial intelligence or really, to some extent, you're looking to improve your productivity is around the critical element of supply chain, which is when will my freight arrive? So looking at what we can take from historical data, current data, and any level of input, such as weather, disruption events, and things like that, to actually get a better analysis. So that's the sort of the area that we're putting quite a bit of investment and effort into developing that capability in order to provide some some improved visibility and predictability to our customers. From your experience across Australia, does Australian companies invest enough in R&D? I don't know whether I would give that perspective on on Australian companies alone, but I think typically in our industry sector, we probably don't push enough into into R&D. So it's a point of difference there? We've just launched an innovation centre, so we've put $20 million down over a, a, a stated five-year period for now to actually work and, and unencumber you know, the brightest and the best people to actually work scouring the world for the best sort of innovative technologies and try and then bring them to a solution and similarly trying to find a problem and then develop solutions that can adapt to it. And it's early days, but you know that we've got uh, a really good team who've who've been able to already identify some really clever things. We're just launching our first drone in a Melbourne warehouse um, just this week. We've started to actually have it going around doing at night cycle counting. You know, for inventory that mm-hmm. we used to employ labour to go and do, yep. and have to disrupt operations in order to do stock takes. Yep. You know, so to be able to to actually prove that technology and have it happen at night, you know, is a dramatic improvement in productivity. And again, we should look at these things as necessary because it means you can repurpose your labor into growth tasks, customer facing. We're at 3.5% unemployment. And so mm. we absolutely need to look at different ways to use our labor you know, more effectively. Are we going to have drones delivering more or what happens to that? <laughs> I know there's all sorts of issues regarding airplanes and flight zones and everything else. But are we, you know, if I'm sitting out in the bush, for example, in Australia, is that something going to be on the radar or not? So- uh, so I heard the theory behind it, but is it actually a truism? I laugh. Let me tell you a little story of, I remember walking into a meeting early on in my time in Toll, you know, where I was, I've always been curious about new technology and new solutions. And so I had been reading up on drones and going, wow, this has got real interest to me and, and talking to the union organizer and saying, let's look at drones. If you thought about the, uh, how that might change the industry and he sort of just laughed at me and said, well, that's never going to happen. Um, well, you know, it is happening. It is happening around the world. There's lots of trials going on. We just recently acquired a drone company in Queensland with the specific aspect of developing capability in that space. Rather than buying a technology business, we actually bought a training and operations business that was really capable around how to actually certify 
and equip people to run and operate drones rather than actually the technology develop, which means we can go and access any of the world's best technology. Because it changes so quickly, right? And then work out how to apply it. Yeah, right. So I, I think that's been a really good investment from our point of view. One contract that we've got with um, New South Wales Health, we're actively looking into how we might deliver capability using drones into remote regional and rural areas in a very cost-effective and, and fast way. And we see plenty of other use cases. So I think drones will become a feature. Will we see thousands of drones in the skies in the metro area delivering packages? No, I don't think so. For you know, I don't know whether it'll ever happen because I think we'll solve it in different ways in those high-density areas. But in a rural context, yeah, I think it's, it's very real. As a CEO, I get to meet all the business people in the country. I haven't met Japan Post, and they've supported this organization or invested in this organization for a period of time now, and it's been some tough times, as you said earlier. Why do they keep supporting? So I think that's very simple. I think it goes back to having real clarity around why did they buy toll? So they were at a point in time where they were looking to list Japan Post on the, the Tokyo Stock Exchange from being a wholly owned government entity. Yeah. And they realized that what they need to do is to show the investment community that Japan Post has got a life outside of Japan. And so to do that, they needed to find a good international logistics company. You know, I'm glad they found Toll. I'm glad they made the decision around Toll because I think we are the right partner for them and we create the right vehicle. Early on, they had to work through the challenge of taking a company that had grown so rapidly and then seeing structural changes in the marketplace and dealing with some of that. And then, you know, we set ourselves off in a, a very aggressive transformation to try and do all that integration. And some of that probably got, you know, I think we had the right ideas, but we got uh, probably some of the execution wrong. But through all of that, Japan Post were clear on why did we buy Toll? And it was a long-term investment for them and they're a very loyal shareholder absolutely so the the mission today hasn't changed from the mission back then which is you know we need to create the vehicle for international growth for japan post in the logistics space particularly through the growing economies in asia so this is the growth play absolutely toll is the vehicle through which you know japan can grow its revenue streams and its um, participation in the global supply chain and they've recently reinvested they did so um one of the things that through all of the changes that we've dealt with through you know the last three years, we needed to improve or increase our debt facilities in order to manage some of the working capital through COVID and all those other times. Yes. We got ourselves to a point where we needed to recapitalize the business. And so we worked with our shareholder around, you know, what were the things that we needed to achieve in order to give them confidence to continue to invest? And so although the mission was clear in their mind, they wanted to see the performance back it up, which we achieved. And in January this year, they injected $2 billion into the business, which gave us a very strong balance sheet now. And it's really that milestone of going, Toll is open to grow, set to grow, and has the capacity to grow. So before getting the number one gig, you were the MD Toll Express? Yeah. It was sold. It was. You doing a good job or was it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, I mean, I think as anyone running a business, do you want the business that you're running to be sold? I think, you know, I'll give the very honest thing. I didn't sit there and go, oh, yeah, please sell, sell the business I'm running. Do I think it was the right decision? Yes, I think for Toll and for the mission that I've just explained of, yeah. you know, the international growth, Global Express was not global. It was an Australian-focused on, Australian-New Zealand-focused business on 
parcel delivery, pallet delivery, intermodal, domestic focus. It's a great business. You know, it's got some structural challenges to it. But I think we worked very hard to try and overcome some of those structural challenges through that period of COVID and set it up for sale at the same time. And so I'm really proud of how the team actually navigated through that. You know, so they were dealing with the challenges of COVID. They were also dealing with the challenges of how to react in a marketplace that was evolving rapidly, as well as actually go through what is quite a distracting period of, mm. of selling a business. And and I really, I think it's gone to a good owner in Allegro. I think they're a, a good company to actually take it on and Why? move it what do you, forward. What do you say? What's the standout for them? Well, when I look at some of the things they've done with, with other businesses, they've really been able to take uh, businesses that they see have a market performance opportunity and really sort of get a crystal clear strategy, inject the right amount of capital and the right amount of change and push it forward. And the example is, uh, I think they've owned a caravan park business three times because they've been able to actually work out how to run it well. And when they've sold it on, as you naturally do in a private equity, it hasn't performed and they've been able to buy it back and then turn it around and run it again. That's an example of how Adrian and Chester have been able to run that business. Another little thing, a bit different about your role, your old boss is the chair. Yeah. That doesn't happen very often. No, in fact, if you sort of read the, you know, the AICD guidelines right. and other things, they're like, that's what you don't do. How's it working? It's I'm working. Sure, I'm sure you're going to say great, but... Oh, yeah. of course I'm going to say it's great. But no, it, it really is. You know, Thomas, Thomas Nutson, you know, is an, an industry stalwart in, in the freight forwarding arena and the logistics arena from all his time with Maersk and Damco and what he'd achieved. So, you know, I'm not an industry stalwart. I've moved through many industries. So yes. he provides some really good wise counsel around, you know, when I come and sort of want to talk about what I'm seeing in the industry or what I'm seeing competitors do. And he did that when he was MD and I was in my freight forwarding role. But then now as chairman, he's got a great leadership style where he very much doesn't interfere. He isn't hands-on. He gives people the freedom and the autonomy to actually go through, but is a wise counsel, is a good kind of a giver of advice and giver of opinions when it's sort of needed or wanted. So we found a really neat working relationship. We speak pretty regularly. We, I spoke to him this morning around, you know, different topics. And it's just great to have someone who knows toll well, but also knows the industry well to bounce ideas off. A little bit different to a lot of leadership in Australia. You've jumped around a bit in the industries, haven't you? I have. Does that put you in a better, better stead, do you think? I don't, I mean, it puts me in the stead that I'm in, in terms of, you know, is it better or worse? Probably you'd be marked by how I, you know, whether I meet the legacy I want to leave for Toll. But I can say that I've always sought a challenge and I've always sought a company with purpose and meaning. And I've always wanted to go somewhere where I feel like I'm home. And in all of the companies I work for, I've, I've always felt that. I've always had that connection to what we do, why we do it and had a connection to the people that I, I work alongside in the company. And I found that in Toll. I think the fact that I've worked in a number of different industries does give me a different perspective. I have been able to see different business models, but you know, it also means I've got to learn this business and I find that fascinating and challenging. And it does mean I look at things at first principles and try and, I guess, ask the, the inquisitive question, why? You recently had a get-together with your exec team, haven't you, in Adelaide? Yeah. From a headhunting point of view, we're in a prime position to search consultants. Because chief execs are vulnerable, in my opinion. And the reason being, 
majority of senior executives are returning our calls. Just increasingly interested to know what's, what else is out there. They're exploring it. They want to know. How are you going to keep them together? How are you going to focus them when we've got so many calls coming back to us? What did you learn? So in Adelaide, as a team, we actually spent a bit of time talking through our recent overall employee survey. First time we've done it in, in as long as I've been in toll, and I think I'm struggling to find when we last did what uh, as an overall. It was quite revealing. So we used PECON, which gave us access to kind of global benchmarks and global okay. things. We came in on benchmark. And so on one hand, you go, terrific. We're in the mix. No you're not, but you're not in pole position, are you? But we're not in pole. And frankly... So on one hand, I uh, I didn't panic as a result of that, but I wasn't happy. And none of us were happy because when you read into it, you sort of go, well, what are the kind of the key things people are looking for? What mm. do they want to, you know, understand? And the challenge is, and, and I think they're a reflection of post-COVID world, you know, a lot of the feedback we got was around workload, environment being kind of key things that we can work on. But they're actually quite, they're quite easy to resolve of getting the team focused on empowering the organization and actually creating capacity in the leadership ranks by actually empowering the lower organization, which actually builds you know, more engagement across the whole company. So that's very much a focus for us. It was in the last six months, but it, you know, it doesn't happen overnight because you've got to create trust. Can I make the decision? Can I take this? And that's what I talked about before. You know, We're really working on creating that spark of going, yes, you can. Have a go. Work through it. So as I look about my own team and the why, rest of the why, team, why, why are people calling me so much, Alan? Why are they returning my calls then? Maybe not you, but in general. And in the next two years, they're definitely going to be calling me. It's the hygiene factors, right? So I think if you look at people coming out of what's been an incredibly difficult period, they're suddenly now taking stock of going, okay, what's next? What does this look like? And if we don't react to that, we're going to lose people. Ultimately, people leave an organization. I think the biggest cause is they leave you know, who they work for. And so leadership becomes incredibly important. But they also leave if you don't get the things around the environment and the workload and their sense of ownership to where you're going. They've got to believe that we're going somewhere. Yeah, okay, let me throw a little bombshell at you there. So I heard in the conversation, well, I was in the conversation, and a senior executive said, you've got to be kidding. I said, what do you mean? Go down to the local cafe, you'll see half an exec team sitting there having coffee. <laughs> get up in the morning, you'll see more dogs being walked than ever before. And yet all I'm hearing all day long is that it's tough. It's getting back to work. I need this sense of purpose. Which one's true? It's a great question. And it's easy to try and give a glib answer to it. Mm. It was an observation done by someone who knew the market inside and out. And there's no point in me fighting that observation. You know, everyone's opinion is true. When I look at, if I think about my own team, what do I worry about? I worry about overworking them. I do, you know, look through that. I want them to try and find ways to delegate. Because if you create capacity, if you create time to think, if you create time to to solve problems in your mind as you're walking the dog and so on, actually, that's the best thing. You know, I would celebrate if I saw my team, my exec team, doing any of those things, having a cup of coffee or walking the dog, because actually it means we're getting the balance right. It means we're getting the leadership right. And it probably means they've got the space, the mental space, to think about what next, to think about how we can make the boat go faster. Okay, so you're walking the dog in the morning, eh? I do, actually. I walk my dog. Um, yeah. Well, when, do you say, when you take the time to think, that's your... Uh, so I've, I think walking the dog and exercise in general is absolutely my problem-solving time. 
It's where I kind of disconnect. There's no phone, there's no anything. It's just you and the environment. I actually paddle a surf ski is my favorite support sport. So I'm on the water and I'm generally trying to, you know, figure out how to not fall in. And so your your mind just is able to decompress and that's when the best ideas come to you. All right. Now you're spending, is that true, 600 million in the next three years, Vietnam, India and Indonesia? We're certainly spending that amount of money in Asia in general. Okay. Um, so we're in nine countries from an, an Asian logistics perspective. So you're perspective. not just talking a good story, actually following through on it? Absolutely. Uh, so last year we approved uh, new warehouses in uh, Vivendi in Mumbai, warehouse in Korea. We've moved into Korea already. Uh, we'll move into uh, Mumbai next year. We've now got you know development plans in the pipeline in Vietnam. Uh, we're looking to expand our warehouses in Singapore. We're looking for how we might grow in China, uh, in both the sort of the north and the south. And where does the innovation center come with? They come that's that's in Singapore, is it right? Innovation centers in Singapore, but to serve the globe in terms of solutions. Okay, is that much different to your competitors? I think so. When when we opened the innovation center, you know, everyone said, "Oh, you've got one now, have you?" <laughs> so what took you so long? Yeah. Um, so I think it'd be glib to say you're the only ones trying to do, you know, innovation. I think ultimately the test is in how you apply it and what you do. I'm super proud of the way the team has has actually come together and opened it up. And we're already seeing, as I said, you know, the drone application in Melbourne. We actually have got autonomous mobile robots in Korea that we've now kind of got geek robots solving the problem between the traditional staging area and how you actually use people to take it from what's been picked to what gets packed and in the truck and need to kind of put that to music because it does look like one of those things that just deserves it's like kind of synchronized chaos but it's a beautiful thing all right last couple of questions back home in australia industrial relations yeah are we playing the smart game it's really interesting you know i on one hand i'm, I'm extremely supportive of the changes that are being proposed and are slated for the further legislation that will come out this year. But I've equally got some concerns. The speed at which the legislation was developed was very fast. And when you kind of get into that kind of industry bargaining position, in certain sectors, I can actually understand you know, why it creates a good opportunity. But if I think about the transport segment and we get into kind of collective bargaining, the risk that I you know, fear is... We slow things down. We actually create um, quite a restrictive scenario rather than actually allowing, you know, the freedom of competition. You know, we're a good payer. We're well above any base wage marks. And so it seems odd for me to say that because I would obviously want the competition to all come up to the same level. But I equally think the danger is, you know, if we can't find the right agreement and we kind of choke up critical supply chains, that brings with it a risk as well. So... We've got to work out actually how we apply some of these applications. But am I supportive of making sure that we get the right safety standards, we get the right kind of rates of pay at that low end of the market? I'm 100% behind that. Am I supportive of, you know, that we get responsible procurement in order to kind of, as an industry, get contracts that make the industry viable and survivable? I'm 100% supportive. So, Getting on well with the unions? Uh, we, we're right in the middle of, well, I said right in the middle, we're just at the start of our kind of current round of yeah. bargaining with the TWU. And so far, you know, the the dialogue yeah. is positive. Yeah, but they've got wind behind the back. Uh, they do, but I think we approach every bargaining with a viewpoint of we're trying to work out that 
appropriate balance between serving the needs of our employees, serving the needs of our customers and serving the needs of our shareholder. And my rule is if everyone's kind of mostly happy but not completely happy, then you sort of got the right amount of balance. And that's how I think we're trying to approach this and approach the discussion. You know, we want to have access to the right people, which means we've got to have a competitive employment package. But we also need to serve our customers. So we've got to have the right productivity in there and we've got to make a return for our shareholder. We've got to strike that balance. Alan, if you could hire more people, what sort of scale of numbers would you talk about? Well, if you look at the organisation, you know, we are growing, but we're trying to find more efficient ways of doing it. So we're trying to re, uh, what I say to all the people, don't fear automation because it creates an opportunity to actually develop and train what have been good, loyal people into new roles. And it means you can grow a career with Toll rather than just stay in the same role. So certainly if I say that we want to double the business, it doesn't mean we're necessarily going to double our employee base. But typically we can't serve customers, you know, in transportation without driving trucks. We will have people in trucks for quite some time, you know, to come. And so we we will become ever-increasing employer. Australian immigration then? Uh, So I think... Frustrating? Yeah. You know, if you look at what are some of the challenges that we face at the moment, it's trying to put enough people on shift in order to serve our market. We're at the tightest labor market, you know, we ever had. So we're not stealing Australians' jobs when we look at immigration. And when I look at the health of the overall country... I believe that we need to grow. So it's about trying to find the right balance of getting that immigration correct, bringing the right kind of skills and making it available in the right locations. But certainly the moves that the government made at the beginning of this year to try and bring more in are welcome, but we need to kind of keep improving the speed and facilitate the way we can actually get the right workforce in. I really like the Singapore model in terms of they have a very kind of keen eye on the number of jobs for their citizens and they try and balance that immigration within that, I think that's healthy. But whilst we're at a labour market right now where the, you know, there's literally at 3.5% unemployment, the people that want a job can get a job. The people mm. that are choosing not to are making that choice. I think as the economy slows down, that might change. But at the moment, I think I'm supportive. Business receive enough incentive? As you said, there's a couple of barriers we've got to think as a country. Our employment costs are high. Our energy costs are high. Our bureaucracy is three levels, at least. And you go to Singapore, we can get things done very, very swiftly for the government who's made some big moves in bringing in multinationals. What's your takeaway, what we can learn from all this? I think any business would say, we want a relationship with government that is pro-business, that, that promotes growth. When I look across all the markets in the world, is there difference? Absolutely, there is. But you, you know, it'd be amazing if it was all the same. Mm. If you, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming your, your question is in the context of the Australian government and the Australian landscape. And what I would say is that the challenge is about the different layers of government and how some of the help goes. You know, right now we are on the cusp of making an announcement for the development of a $200 million state-of-the-art warehousing facility in Western Sydney. Okay. And we're having to work our way through planning approvals And they're very necessary and they're really important, but the speed at which that uh, occurs is currently a challenge for us. It's currently a challenge for our developer and it has a flow on effect that it's sort of starving the opportunity of new jobs coming into the economy uh, and new employment and our customers, you know, getting a, a really great facility. So those are examples where, you know, I'd really like to see government a bit more proactive in sort of looking at what is it that we're trying to achieve and how do we really get behind that and drive some speed 
into the decision making. That's what will set Australia apart from an investment context. We have the opportunity to deploy capital in any country that we want to operate in. Mm. We want to choose the areas that we see the opportunity. But if we find that we can't get the approvals, then we potentially need to make alternate choices. You just mentioned an opportunity there, potentially in the wings. What does that mean for Tal? It's a real kind of, I think, statement that comes with the recapitalization. We got the recapitalization. Now we've put $200 million of investment into Australia. It's our first major investment some years. It gives a clear indication that although we're looking to grow globally, you know, we still know where our home is and where we need to support. The other reason I'm super excited is, you know, we spent quite a number of years now developing our Preston's e-commerce facility as a multi-user facility. And through the pandemic, that kept all of us in, uh, I guess, essential footwear, essential clothing. It fueled some of the retail activity that went on for a number of our customers. So to be able to bring a facility that's double the size of that with modern technology, really state-of-the-art, it also will be a green star rating five with um, full solar onto the roof to allow us to actually shift into that next phase of how we actually run facilities. We're really excited. Personal side, you invest time, we go in your own personal time, on boards, uh, including healthy heads in trucks and sheds. What is that all about? Uh, it's a terrific charity. I can't take any credit for the creation of that. You know, there was a number of key people in the industry several years ago, I think back in 2020, that recognised that mental health in the workplace is a real challenge. And so Australia Post, um, Lynn Fox, um, Toll, and a number of other organisations kind of came together and said, we need to do something about this. And formed a charity, uh, not-for-profit, really focused in terms of its mission on three things. Firstly, it's about training and educating people around the mental health topic, how to recognise it, how to deal with it, how to handle it focused on the standards and, I guess, policy lobbying of how to actually influence to kind of create the right environment for our workforce. And then finally, you know, actually promoting how to live from a well-being point of view. A lot of our workforce operate in isolation, not just truck drivers, which is sort of well-known and understood, but actually operatives in warehouses can operate often in tasks on their own for quite big chunks of the day. And so you've really got a manage of how to live and operate in a community where you can recognize the signs of mental health challenges, where you can create a positive environment where that conversation can be held and where you can get appropriate help and training. Paul Graham is the chair of that charity. I think he leads it really well. Naomi Fraunfelder is the CEO and she really does a terrific job. What I really want to see though is like any not-for-profit needs money in order to grow, we have a truck that is a roadshow that goes around. It is booked out for the next two years. So we've got enough demand to put two or three trucks on. We have terrific support from the manufacturers to provide it, but to actually staff it, we've got to kind of put more money in. So we need more people to kind of get on board. And we also are looking for the government to also kind of really support what is such a, an important topic in an industry segment that employs so many great Australians out there. As a leader... What's the best counsel you think you've received? <laughs> I've received a lot of counsel. I'm definitely a product of people who've given me good advice along the way. Uh, so I, I think, I think the, the wisest thing people have said to me is you've got to lead in the way that you can be true to yourself and feel that you have done your very best each day, you know, have you have you done that? And if you haven't, then work out why and come back tomorrow. 
and do better. But it's exhausting, isn't it? I think, no. I think leadership is is a gift. You know, it's an opportunity. Um, it really is a privilege to have the opportunity to to be in a leadership role. But ultimately, you've got to have people who want to follow you. And so if you have people that want to follow you, there isn't more, I think, energy that you can get of being able to then utilize that opportunity to do good. So when you hire, what do you look for in people? So definitely not the hard skills, but the, the soft skills. I'm looking for how does this person conduct themselves? You know, Do they have the right values, the right kind of attitude towards themselves and an organization? Do they have sufficient kind of curiosity and drive to actually go out and do better in the organization? There, I think they're kind of the key things that I'm looking for. You can teach the hard skills, you can teach the organization, you can teach experience or you can gain experience, you know, you can learn new industries. But ultimately at your core are the people that you are looking to hire. Are they made of the stuff that will fit in your organization and actually add value to it? If you were to look back at that young man studying at the University of Nottingham all those years ago, what advice would you give him now? Take a gap year. (laughs) Don't be so eager to get on with life. Go and experience it. I, I was very eager early on where I've now had the opportunity to to see the world, to travel the world, and I think it broadens you as a person. And so, you know, to my children, I will absolutely be giving them that advice and opportunity to say, go and see the world, have some experiences. It will make you a better human when you kind of turn up in the workplace. On that, Alan, it's been a real pleasure today. Thanks very much. You've been listening to No Limitations. No Limitations.